0: Now I wanna talk about this question that you heard, the man asked by Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Two men are lying in a hospital room, both of them mostly immobile. It's a small room, two beds. There's a small locker by each bed, a door going out into the hallway, a window looking out on the world. Both men have been told that they must lie still, they cannot stimulate their minds with any radio or television, and this is long before internet, and so they start carrying on conversations. They talk about their family and their friends, their hobbies, their careers, their children. They talk about politics and sports and religion and get to be very good friends. But the best hours of the day is when the man by the window is permitted just for a while to sit up. Something about fluid in the lungs, they said. They need to let it drain. And when he sits up, he turns and looks out the window onto the world and he starts describing in vivid detail what he sees. While the one by the door, just enjoys the images. Apparently, the window overlooked a small city park with a lake there. There were swans, there were children making boats and sailing them. There were men playing ball in the field. There were lovers walking around the edges of the pond. Families were sitting down for picnics. There were parades and festivals and picnics and games. And day after day, the man by the window is describing in vivid detail the things that he sees. The flowers are in full bloom. The trees are full of green. And above the trees, there's the skyline. One day, The man by the window began to describe a parade that was coming through the park. The children were starting to gather and the families wrapping up with the picnics. The children were collecting the candy. And while the man was describing in full detail, the one by the door began to envy. Why should I have to lay over here flat on my back while my friend gets the full benefit of a view to the world. He said nothing about it, kept his conversation civil and friendly, but inside the envy and the anger began to mount. Then one night, about two in the morning, he heard a cough from the man by the window, He waited and the cough grew more and more. On and on and on the coughing started until the man sat up and started to choke. The one by the door reached for the button to summon the nurse. And then he withdrew his hand and waited. Within a few moments, the coughing stopped. Then the breathing stopped. The one by the door just stared at the ceiling and did nothing. When the morning came and the nurses arrived to bring both patients their water, they noticed that the one by the window had died. They removed his body. The one by the door said nothing. He waited a couple of days until it was, um, you know, decent. And then he asked, is there any chance you could uh, maybe move me over in the bed by the window? Sure, said the nurse, I bet we can make that happen yet today. And sure enough, within about 30 minutes, they did. They got him up, they moved him over, tucked him in, got him quiet and comfortable, and he laid flat on his back until the nurses left the room. Then he worked himself to his elbows And with his hands, he pushed himself up, swung his legs around and got his first good look out the window. It faced a blank wall. When you look out your window onto what is happening in front of us right now, what do you see? Every one of us responds in every situation according to how that situation occurs to us. And how it occurs to us depends on what we see. And what we see depends more on what is in us than on what's in front of us. That's what the story of the wall illustrates So when you look out onto this crisis, how does it occur to you? What do you see? In Mark, there are two stories of men who were blind. Blindness in the gospel of Mark is a metaphor for a spiritual condition that the prophet Isaiah was the first to diagnose almost eight centuries before. Isaiah said that the people in his day who were religious people would be ever seeing, but never perceiving, always hearing, but never understanding. Once more, he is not describing people in the world. He's describing religious people. Isaiah says, who is blind, but my servant, who is deaf, except the one committed to me. Who is blind except the one I have sent? Who is blind but the servant of God? One more time, blindness in Isaiah and in Mark is not a condition that the world is having. It's a condition that religious people are having precisely because they think they can see. When you think you can see, you start naming things, you report the facts, you make observations like everyone else is making. You're the first to come forward with the latest, but you can't put things together. You don't understand the meaning of what's happening. You just understand what's happening. So... You have lots of knowledge, but not a lot of wisdom. Tons of information coming all the time, but not much insight. Lots is happening to you, but not much is occurring to you because you, you can see, but you can't see clearly. These two miracles of two blind people receiving their sight occur in Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 10. These two incidents create something like a parentheses or brackets or bookends that help to interpret all of the events in between them. I've listed in front of you eight different events, relax, I won't talk about all of them. But these eight events are gaffes or blunders committed by the disciples, by religious people, because they think they can see, but they can't see clearly. In Mark chapter eight, there's a man who is brought to Jesus. He's blind, he's a beggar. They ask Jesus to do something for him, and so Jesus pulls him outside the village Bits on the man's eyes. And then he says, what do you see? The man says, I see people like trees walking. So, so he can see, he sees shapes and movements, but he can't see clearly. Then Jesus touches him a second time and suddenly his eyes were opened and he sees everything clearly. What follows that miracle in Mark chapter eight, that first bracket is story after story of disciples failing to see. The very next story in Mark is Jesus asking the disciples, whom do you say that I am? Peter says, why you are the Christ, the son of God. So we can see. But a moment later, when Jesus describes how the Christ must suffer, Peter says, no, Lord, that will never happen to you. So we can't see clearly. A few verses later, when John approaches Jesus and he says, we saw somebody who was trying to cast out demons in your name, but he was not one of us. And so we told him to stop. He he can see that Jesus has authority over demons and that Jesus is forming a community, so he sees. But he doesn't see that just because the people in that community belong to Jesus, he doesn't belong only to them. He belongs to the world. So they see, but they, they, they can't see clearly. A few verses later, when a rich man comes to Jesus and and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him to sell all that he has, give to the poor, and follow me. The disciples are standing right next to him. And when that exchange is over, the disciples ask Jesus, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle than for a rich person to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Peter, again, speaks up and says, but Lord, we have sacrificed everything for you. So he sees. He's generous, self-giving. He's disciplined. We've given up everything for you. But a moment later, when Jesus answers him, it's clear that he doesn't see clearly. For Jesus says, no one who has given up anything for my sake will fail to receive a hundred times more. So for Peter, it's still a sacrifice. And for Jesus, it's an upgrade. Peter can see, but he can't see clearly. The last contrast of this occurs in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus asks the same question, what do you want me to do for you? Twice. The first time he asks it of the disciples. James and John approach Jesus and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, well, grant that in your kingdom, one of us would be on your right and another on your left. So they see that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is forming a kingdom that is coming into this world. But they can't see clearly because they're looking for positions of power power and prominence and authority over other people. In other words, they're asking Jesus to give them what he does not possess himself. And he can't give it, not because he's stingy, but because he doesn't have it. The kind of power and authority the disciples are looking for belongs to a different kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is about going down, not up. The leader is in the back of the line, not for now, forever, because that's the way this kingdom works, and the disciples cannot see it. By the time you get to the story of Bartimaeus, which was just acted out a few moments ago, it's pretty clear that you and me are no longer one of the disciples. In this story, we're supposed to be Bartimaeus. We're sitting alongside the road, begging with our coat in front of us, and we hear a noise coming down the road. It's, it's getting louder, and it's, a, and it's a bigger noise. We've heard them before, but not like this. And as it gets closer, you ask someone next to you, Who, what, what's all the ruckus, the noise? And someone said, it's, it's Jesus, that prophet from Nazareth. And when you hear it, you start to shout at the top of your lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Incidentally, no one in the entire gospel, save Peter and the demons, have called Jesus Son of David. A blind man has more insight already than 11 of the disciples. The people around you are telling you to be quiet, but you keep shouting to the top of your lungs, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they keep saying, it's a strong word in the Greek where they say, shut your mouth. And this... This pictures all of the religious people that have gathered around you are saying, you should not be calling out to Jesus like this. You're looking desperate. You're looking broke. Religious people are not desperate, but you know better because you've just been through two and a half chapters Where you've learned that you see but you can't see clearly and now you want to and so you keep shouting and suddenly jesus says call him bring him over here and the very people that were telling you to shut up a moment ago come to your side and they help you up you throw that coat (laughs) that income aside And you start fumbling toward the direction of Jesus. This is your moment. You have to push through all of the insults and all of the threats and all of the images that you think religious people are having of you. And you have to try to get in front of Jesus for 30 uninterrupted seconds. Now he says to you what he said to the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? By the time you get to the end of Mark chapter 10, there's only one answer to that question. I wanna see. Yet I'm half blind, precisely because I think I can see. The obstacle to seeing is not blindness. It's the illusion that you can already see. So in desperation, you go back to the same Jesus who forgave you of your sins. And now you ask him to open your eyes so you can see not just some of the things, but you can see everything and you can see it clearly. About six weeks ago, as we started to descend into this crisis, I hit this question in Mark chapter 10. What do you want me to do for you? And I prayed the probably the same as you did. I want you to take the crisis away. I want the sickness to stop. I want things to go back to normal. And then it occurred to me that maybe normal wasn't that great. And so I started asking that God would help me to see. And here's why. Because while everyone else is reporting the facts, recycling the same tired news, coming into the office with the latest information, precious few are the people who have wisdom and insight. And I want us, the people of God, to be among them. And it starts by praying, Jesus, I just want to see. I want to see everything that you're doing. While the news is constantly reporting that people are dying and it's tragic, it's unthinkable in the scale of our losses, I want to see that other people are coming alive. The Spirit is bringing people and churches and communities and families and homes where you're gathered right now all over the county. He's bringing us alive, and we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. God is moving the community out, and the church is in hundreds of places. I wanna see more than logistics, more than cash flow, more than restructuring the organization. I wanna see the individuals in the organization and the stories and the threats with the dreams that are behind their eyes. And I know that's what you want to. So here's how I think we do it. First, I think this is the time for us to go back to the Word of God. And this time, not only read the Bible, read alongside it, as we said before, use it like a flashlight that you aim at what's happening so you can interpret it. In other words, tomorrow morning when you get up, open the Bible like you always do and read this with that in mind take out a pen, and whatever you think you hear God saying to you from Scripture about this crisis, just write it down. Second, when you go to work or when you're in with your family, wherever you're with other people, while everyone else is looking at the logistics and worried about numbers and how things have to be restructured, Ask yourself, what's happening in the people of this organization? What are their stories and their greatest needs? And maybe something you wrote down that morning might apply. This week, probably four times in the morning, I've done that very thing. Something has come, I think, from the Lord. I've written it down, put it on a Post-it note, stuck it on the wall, and probably three times that day was able to refer to what I thought the Lord told me. And it's incredible the power that God's word has to speak to real people in real times like these. Finally, maybe the way to see as Jesus sees this crisis is to turn the question around. Why don't you ask him, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Because it could be that seeing is not a gift that God gives you. It's something that occurs while you are doing what Jesus is doing. You won't see until you're in it. And then it will start to be clear that God is active in every place. This week, as I've come into this room and thought about you and your families in yours, the scriptures about seeing came to mind. I started to pray that God would open our eyes like the servant of Elisha so that we would see that those who are for us are stronger than those who are against us. I prayed like Paul that God would open the eyes of your heart so that you would know the riches of the inheritance that he has given you in Jesus Christ and that you would feel the power that raised Jesus from the dead on my wall in the office I have a card that I wrote uh, just with a pen, a verse that I've prayed over our staff and I've prayed over you this week from Philippians chapter one, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and depth of insight so that you may know what is best and that you would produce with your life a full harvest of righteousness. Can I pray with you? Jesus, I've been a Christian a long time, so long that I might've lost the mystery, the wonder, that used to come with this. I've fallen into patterns. I see only what they put in front of me, almost nothing else. And yet every day is full of opportunity and the father is always working and the son is working with him. Call me into those places Open my eyes so I can see what you see in Jesus' name.